All right, welcome everybody to this episode of the Artists of Motion podcast. Today we've got my buddy, Jim Knudsen Sheehan, from what is presently quite chilly Anchorage, Alaska, USA. He is the Dojo Cho, aka head instructor of Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu of Anchorage, and is trained in Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu as well as a few other styles. I'm stoked he's on the show with us today. How are you, Jim? Long time no see. I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for having me on today. I'm stoked, man. We haven't seen each other in getting close to two years now. Yeah, it has been a long time, this... uh covid type pandemic has affected us all i call shenanigans so anyway i kind of gave everybody just a real brief overview there in the intro but i'm going to turn it over to you at this point so how about uh, telling us how what's your training history look like all right steve um so i would say that uh, my martial art training actually started as an officer in junior high and in high school but it wasn't really competitive or serious um I looked into martial arts as something serious I wanted to do about 2008. I was competitively training for triathlons at the local YMCA here in Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, came across uh, what appeared to be a young gentleman walking across the foyer, and I followed the person into the dojo, introduced myself, and said, hello, sir, I'd like to train, and my sabomnim for the next seven years, a female master instructor in Tung Sudo turned around and said, well, hello. <laughs> so that caught me a little off guard. Um, I trained with her in Tung Sudo since 2008 and received uh, black belts in that. And along the way, uh, the Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu that was also sharing the space at the YMCA invited me to come and train with them. Shihan uh, Ramsey Nassar, said, hey, you should come and do this. It's a lot of fun. And I said, sure, I'll give it a try. So I started training uh, with them in Seibukan in 2012. And to date, I have reached my uh, Shihan Dai in Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu, fifth degree black belt, currently working for sixth degree Rokudon. Um, I also spend time training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, American boxing, um, and Muay Thai. Other than that, I uh, take extra time to uh, condition my body through um, cardio, long-distance training. I've been a long-distance runner ever since high school, uh, competitive marathon runner, uh, 5K runner, and I um, think it's important you know, to keep physical conditioning of the body as well as mental conditioning. And uh, I've taken over the Seibukan Dojo for the past three years. Um, Ramsey Nassar Shihan asked me to take over uh, because he had some family priorities he wanted to put to the forefront of his life and I readily accepted and made sure to contact Concho and take care of any of the necessary things I had to do to become the Dojo Cho of Anchorage Sebukan Jiu-Jitsu at the YMCA. Ever since, I've just been uh, taking all the time I could to expand the Sabucon program at the YMCA. When I did so, I wanted to add um, children's and youth classes that weren't co- currently offered um, at the YMCA. So I started those two programs, and they took off like a wildfire. Um, I had, at one point, about 20 students in the 7- to 9-year age bracket, um, anywhere between 15 and 20 active students in our youth age bracket, which is 10 to 14, and then was teaching the 15 to 20 adults that would come in for Sabicon classes, and we were holding classes 
three days a week and on Saturdays. Um, at that time, I decided that I was going to invest my more of my time and effort into Sebucon, and so I canceled the Tung Sudo program that I took over for my Sabamnim Master Tome um, because we didn't have the support structure here in Alaska through the association I had been training with, whereas I had a lot of support structure with multiple dojos and Shihan level instructors in the state at the time. So I shut down Tung Sudo and wholeheartedly began the Sebukan process. And we've been going strong ever since, even with the COVID um, craziness, I'll call it. Um, we were only shut down for a period of three months here in Alaska. And I opened up a small training space in my backyard on my patio to do private lessons with those who are still interested. And um, the YMCA found a way to comply with uh, state and city regulations and allowed us to open up and do training. Um, we were allowed to do Zoom classes if we wanted to, but I felt it was more important to get together one-on-one -on -one or in small groups and still get hands-on, so to speak, and train together. Even if we needed to maintain six feet of distance, um, I think there's something lost on a Zoom class that you can't quite get um, being there in person face-to-face, -face, so to speak. I totally agree, especially when you're talking uh, jiu-jitsu, where, you know, it's pretty hard to do jiu-jitsu without, you know, grabbing and twisting things. It, it really is. <laughs> it really is. You, know, you can only learn so much from a video, and you can only go through drills so much until you got to put hands on. Yeah, a couple of my my, my buddies use the uh, jiu-jitsu quote, the jiu-jitsu is kind of like doing involuntary yoga. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Folding clothes with someone in them. There you go. <laughs> it's really difficult to do that without somebody else, you know? It is. But I really love jiu-jitsu. Um, it takes time away from my family um, in part, but all of my children, um, my oldest 18-year-old son, he's been my student in both Tung Sudo and Sebukan. He holds black bolts in both those arts. My 14-year-old daughter, Trinity, is currently working towards her green belt in Sebukan Jiu-Jitsu, and my nine-year-old daughter, Isabella, is working towards her uh, yellow belt with a stripe. So it's been a way that I've been able to connect with my children and stay close to them while also teaching them self-confidence and um, self-protection at the same time. I was going to ask if you had continued doing any of the Tung Sudo. I know you had shut down the uh, YMCA program, but I wasn't sure if you were still doing any of that privately. That's pretty cool. I still train Tung Sudo about three days a week. I go over my forms. My Sabam them always used to ask us, what are you going to do this weekend? Are you going to drive yourself? Are you going to commit yourself to getting better? Um, because, you know, we only had two to three day options for when she could hold class. And in my mind, it was taught to me, but I do believe it, that a couple days a week just really isn't enough to build on your skills. It's enough to maintain what you poss possibly have, but you really have to train more than two to three times a week if you want to progress through whatever system you're working with. So she would say, look, you can always do forms. You don't need another person. You don't need any training equipment and you need a very small space. So I've constantly been trying to keep up on my forms. Um, can't really do the Hoshin soul side of it. I've got to put hands on for that. 
Um, but I can work on my kicks. I can work on my strikes. I can work on my flexibility and forms are great for all of that through Tung Sudo, which is my first art. And I still have a strong passion for it. It is part of my iron triangle of martial arts, a striking art, a grappling art, and one that brings it all together. Okay. Which one's the one that brings it all together? Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu. You had to know that question was coming, right? Of course. Of course. You know, Tung Sudo very strict style, uh, American Taekwondo. Tung Sudo is just the traditional side of that. Um, but it is a very linear, very striking, very aggressive art. Um, and so I really love it for the aspect of striking. Uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, uh, purely grappling art for the most part. Um, learns how to, you know, overwhelm somebody that's bigger than you, um, that maybe is taking you to the ground and deal with that situation. And then the thing I love so much about Sebukan is that while we have our keyhone, our basic techniques and certain things that cannot be changed, other arts, other styles and cross training are heavily recommended and supported within the art. That's a tremendous recap there. So let me see. You get more of the striking from Tanksudo, and I'm, I'll be completely honest. I'm not 100% familiar with more of what the Tanksudo curriculum was. I've got uh, training in Hapkido and in Taekwondo. So fill me in on what's the, what's the background in Tanksudo from your lineage that you were part of? So I was part of North American Tanksudo, which uh, came from Master Peter Owen on the East Coast, Massachusetts. Um, it's very similar to World Tanksudo. Um, but everything there is, uh, I hate to say it, but Cobra Kai-ish, strike hard, strike first, um, leaving out the no, the no mercy, sir, part of it. Um, I was always taught, you know, don't start a fight, but in Tung Sudo, end it as quickly as possible. Um, energy is something that you don't want to just use haphazardly. You want to be efficient and Tung Sudo, the mantra we always spoke was one technique finish. Everything I do, every punch I throw, every block I throw, every movement I take is intended to end the fight as quickly as possible, op- optimally, um, with the fact that you, you got to know that not everything's always going to work, so be ready for the next attack, but put 110% into every strike and every block. So that that's really the core roots of the, the Tung Sudo I was taught. Was there much of the grappling that was in part of that, or was it really, really dominated on the striking side? Well, um, we had what's called Hoshin Soul in our organization, which is Hapkido, basically. Hapkido being an entire martial art based on um, some joint locks and uh, redirecting attacks, one-step sparring, things like that. Um, And it it was really well-balanced. a Tung Sudo class for me would consist of about a 30 to 45 minute warm up, stretching. Then we'd work into line drills, you know, up and down the class, working through our stances and our basic techniques. Then the younger students, uh, belt wise, um, experience wise, would sit down. The more advanced students would go through advanced techniques. And then we would normally run through about 20 to 30 minutes of katas. And, you know, we'd start with the younger belts and everybody would do it and then work through the progression up to the black belts. And then each night would focus on one to three other skill sets, whether it be uh, one-step sparring, self-defense, doing 
live action sparring, uh, working on different weapons techniques. There wasn't a lot of weapons involved in our schools, Tung Sudo, but I know other schools uh, concentrate on staff. Um, so that was the, the basis for Tung Sudo there. Um, being one of only three or four adults that would regularly attend the class, I trained with a lot of teenagers and that really kept me motivated because these young kids, you know, at that point I'm in my thirties and I'm trying to hang with 18 and 20 year olds, um, that could have run circles around me if I hadn't, you know. Yeah. They just don't get tight. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I was really, really curious then what's the comparison. I mean, so you, you went down the road with Tang Sudo for quite a ways, right? How far, how far into the Don levels do you get with Tang Sudo? Currently working, um, well, I, I can't really work towards the current level, unfortunately, with Master Tomei retiring, nobody else in my association in Alaska. So I reached the third Don status, and I, I would have to go and join a new association. A lot of times that means, you know, a lot of extra fees or starting over again, which starting over again, not a big problem, but... Um, there just not being anybody in that association here in Alaska. There is a World Tongue Pseudo Association, but the associations don't always get along so well. So I just decided that um, with the information I had, I was teaching the classes, um, teaching three days a week, teaching black belts all the way down to white belts, and felt I had enough information to share with them um, at the third Don level that I could still train and promote first Don students and um, impart that level of knowledge to them. Okay, so that you've had a significant volume of training behind there. Uh, I know that you've already made it to Godon. You're working on Rokudan for Sebukon, so that's fifth degree working on sixth degree. How difficult did you find it going from one curriculum to a totally different curriculum and both of them being as extensive as they are in material? Well, um, I think Tung Sudo taught me patience because in Tung Sudo, as with many other martial arts, there's a set curriculum or a set amount of skills or knowledge you have to have to then be tested for a level or a belt. And Master Tome, um, to her credit, did not run a belt factory. There are some schools out there, and I get it, it's a business and you got to pay the bills and keep the doors open. So a lot of places will teach their bread and butter classes, a bunch of kids running around and they'll promote them and you know expect fees for all of that. And then they'll really concentrate on some of those more advanced students and working towards black belt levels. But master Tomei always said, there's nothing free in this class. You're going to work for it. I'm never going to give something to you just because you've been here a certain amount of time. You'll prove to me that you understand the knowledge. And we always drilled and trained to have things become a reflex or second nature, not to where you would have to think about something. So while it was possible for me to get a, blue, a black belt in two years through that curriculum, that was the minimum. And Master Tomei, uh, through her wisdom, decided it would take me five years to reach my first black belt okay so once you get through that much of a essentially it's a gut check at that point 
then moving over towards studying Sebukon, I mean, I personally, I know the level of material that's in Sebukon. There's a ton of material to go from anything else to, into that style. So you had the, the mental discipline from Tengsudo. From a material standpoint, though, it's a totally different material set. Yeah, and a different language, too. So <laughs> it was fun. Um, you know, being an instructor and trying to be as legitimate um, appearing as possible, of course, speaking in Korean, um, through black belt classes, um, having the Korean mindset, talking in Korean as much as possible for techniques and stances, and then counting in Korean, and then going right into a Seibukan class that started 15 minutes later, which is all in Japanese, um, at least for the terminology and stuff and the way we count, that was a bit of a, a hard changeover for the first few months. But then... Once again, I really fell in love with the style of Sebukan, um, the instructor and his black belt support group. They were just a, a great group of people um, that wanted to have fun um, while learning self-defense and, you know, conditioning our bodies. So at first I was still stuck in military drill instructor, you know, hardcore Tung Sudo mode. And I would have to just kind of, step outside of myself and then put myself in a new frame of mind for each Sebukan class. But in Sebukan, we um, have a certain set of traditions to open each class and close each class. And, you know, you hear two claps and everybody lines up. And then the instructor says, Dozo, that means go ahead. We kneel down and they give the command Moksu. And that's where we cleanse our minds from whatever else is going on and prepare ourselves to enter that mode and, and be prepared to take on what the instructor that day has to impart to us in that Seibukan class. And so I learned how to, quote unquote, empty my cup a little bit each day to prepare myself to take in the new information. But it was really easy, actually, because they were so welcoming to how I did my punches or my kicks or some stances I used from Tung Sudo, and they were like, that is great. Use that while applying this technique or this principle, this Gensoku from Sebukan. And once you've figured it out, now find a way to make it your own. So transitioning from one to the other wasn't terribly difficult. Um, but for a while there, I was teaching both classes. So eventually I was teaching Tung Sudo and teaching Sebukan both in the same day as I took over each each uh, each system at that location. Um, so I just got used to it. And Sebukan does have a lot of information, you know, between our Kihon Waza, basic techniques, the Taisabaki, which is body movement, off-the-line movement, and then from moving through our weapons, Goshenjitsu, self-defense, um, our weapons, Katas, our Henko, which is a form of variations. Um, it was... A really, it's a really fun system, and you're given a sheet of paper from day one once you join that says, look, this is the information you need to learn and show proficiency at, and when you think you're ready, you ask one of the instructors or the designated black belt, say, look, I think I'm ready, and then you do a one-on-one -on -one test with them. That was a big changeover from Tung Sudo as well, where the instructor or the Sabam Nim said, look, 
you're all testing next week, be ready. And then you all lined up in a military formation and did the test together and were put on the spot right there. Um, much different modality or way of thinking um, with Sabukan Jiu-Jitsu, where it's an at-your-pace martial art. And they really try to promote things through positive reinforcement, um, whereas Kung Sudo was a little bit more militaristic. But I, I love both styles, and so I gleaned from each what I could and then kind of made it my own and uh, was able to actually introduce a lot of Kung Sudo into my Seibukan classes. I'd imagine there's some striking pieces that you're highlighting out of that curriculum. Yes. Yeah. And, um, as well as American boxing, you know, I, I've always wanted to understand how a boxer thinks, moves, reacts, because I don't think there's any one best system that exists out there. I think it's all about the practitioner and what they, how they use the system and what they're using it for. And so I always knew a, a great boxer could take on a, a great martial artist, um, of a certain style and so I wanted to put tools in my tool belt, so to speak. Um, I consider myself a jack of all trades of martial arts. I want to understand how each different fighting style works um, and understand it so that I can break it down a little bit, not only to get better in the style myself, but to understand where it creates openings or has deficiencies that I feel that I might be able to exploit if I do need to defend myself against a skilled opponent. It seems like there's two main camps and then there's a few people in the middle, but it seems like the, the martial artists kind of break down into one of two camps and it's either they want to streamline down the material to get to just the stuff that's really going to work that we can do over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. And then there's other camps where it's like, I'm going to give you an absolute ton of material and out of that, you're going to find what works best for you. There's not a whole lot of middle ground in my experience. No, I agree. I agree. Um, and I think there's a place for both. Um, you know, there's, if you want to just learn how to take somebody out that assaults you and end it quickly, um, I think you need to have those skill sets ready to go. And instead of maybe saying practicing 20 different ways to punch somebody, you practice one or two, you practice target location, you do it repetitively to where it becomes a reflex. And then if somebody tries to put hands on, you step the right direction, block a certain way, create the opening, and try to end the fight. But at the same time, having more skills in your repertoire might allow you to uh, you know, pull something out in a needed time if something's not working. To, you know, be prepared for the worst, but hope for the best, right? Um, so... I try to stay away, and at first, I might, I might say I was part of the group. Um, just having known Tung Sudo, it being my only martial art, and being taught that this is the way, and we're going to do, you're going to do it my way, and you're going to learn how to do it efficiently and effectively. And if you give 110 percent, you're going to take down your opponent. You're going to run right through them. Well, then I started watching. MMA and looking at other styles and wanting to know, Hey, is my style really going to hold up? And while there are some excellent strikers in the UFC and in mixed martial arts, 
there's also a lot of grappling. So I started seeing these strikers getting taken down and get pounded, pounded. And it just so happened that, uh, another martial artist here in Anchorage invited me to start taking some Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes with him. And I fell in love with that style as well. I don't think if I ever came across a set of circumstances where I was being accosted by more than one individual that I would ever plan on taking the fight to the ground. I'm, I'm more of a person that wants to stay on my own two feet, but I also knew that a lot of fights go to the ground. And so I should get comfortable with that skill set in case I was ever taken to the ground. And it worked out that the wrestling I did um, in junior high and high school uh, made me more comfortable on the ground than I thought I would be. And there were a lot of skill sets that crossed over. So um, that was also a lot of fun. And But then I training at the local Gracie Baja dojo in Anchorage, um, I decided that sports jujitsu wasn't for me. You know, there are a lot of techniques in sports jujitsu that just don't have any place in a real fight. So I started uh, the Gracie Combatives curriculum um, with the, the friend who initially invited me to Gracie Baja. And together we completed the Gracie Combatives program, which is just a system of 35 techniques built on taking down and subduing a larger opponent. Um, and in that scenario, you know, your win condition is staying alive um, until help can arrive or until you can subdue this opponent um, completely to set separate set of circumstances from the way I'd been trained. But I saw the value in it and I still continue to train in Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, as often as possible, mostly on Friday nights. Yeah, that value in having complementary skill sets is just ridiculously off the charts good to do completely agree with that one yeah and you know like i said i believe it's earlier um having all those different skills and different skill sets i've kind of learned that not any one technique or style is better than the other um i do have questions about certain techniques and certain systems but it seems like today there's a lot of people that are saying, well, Aikido has no place in a street fighter. This style isn't any good, or this style relies too much on this. And I think it all breaks down once again to the practitioner and why they're training, how they're training and how much they're training. You know, um, not every style works for every type of person. And I don't think that we should ever say this style has no place. Um, much like Aikido, Febukan has a lot of Aikido roots and bases in it. And even if I'm not going to use a certain technique from an Aikikai style of Aikido, understanding the movement and the third points, the angles, everything about the way techniques work, I think there's a lot of value in studying those styles, the way they move, using katas, um, Everything has value. It's just learning how to find the value and then to turn that into a practical, applicated technique, if that makes sense. Well said. There's a, I can't remember where it was recorded, but there was a dialogue that somebody recorded at some point between Bruce Lee and Ed Parker. Uh, Bruce Lee being, obviously, Bruce Lee, and Ed Parker was the founder of American Kempo and had one of the first American karate schools on the planet uh, back in the late 1950s. 
but they had a big discussion mm-hmm. over, you know, Bruce Lee's position was that you don't need to give every student the entirety of the mountain. You know, you just need to give them the pieces that works for them and let them, you know, get better at them. And at Parker's position on that was basically, you know, the student doesn't need the mountain. The instructor needs the mountain because the instructor has to help the student figure out what's going to work for them. I thought that was a right. really cool dialogue right. between the two points of view. And it kind of parallels where, you know, you've got the reality con- or the reality camps and then you've got the let's archive as much information as we can camps so you can pick out what works for you. And to your point, I think there's merit in both approaches. And it's, it's really all about firing out, figuring out who you are as a martial artist. And you can't do that in six yeah, months here, six right. months there, six months there. You have to actually be immersed in it for quite some time for you know, each individual style to really understand what's in that style and how that applies to you. I agree. Yeah, one of the, my fellow martial artists uh, trained with him in Sebukan for a while. He always said, and he had come from a, a Tung Sudo background as well. He always said, by the time a guy reaches about third dawn, that's when you know he's probably dangerous. And we didn't really talk about it that much further at the time, but it made sense to me thinking about thinking back on it and just about how how many techniques that person must know and is, has trained and just the amount of hours that person has dedicated um, and you know, sacrificed in their life and put towards that training. Um, it, it's to be respected and to be valued. Um, so I completely agree that, you know, that not every student needs that mountain, but I, I would sure hope that the instructors I've chosen had a, a, a deep base of knowledge to offer me, <laughs> um, you know, because I don't want to go someplace and, and waste my time. Um, but I feel I've been really lucky in those regards. Um, Saba Mimtoni was an amazing female martial artist, a uh, very fierce woman. <laughs> I don't know where I'd be today without her. Um, she taught me a lot of confidence, self-control, discipline. Ramsey uh, Nasar Shihan from Sabukan Jiu-Jitsu. The guy is the wind. He has a controlled chaos about him, but he also has a gentle spirit, and he just wanted Jiu-Jitsu to be fun. Um, and I remember one story. Uh, I was fresh in from Tung Sudo, still working on my lower-level uh, Mudan belts, and... I was questioning a lot of stuff, you know, because I was still in that Tung Sudo mindset that this is the way, you know, this is our way is the best way and over depth, overcome, you know, and, and get it done. Um, and so he, he grabbed me and said, Hey, come on over here. I want to, I want to show you something. And so he's like, okay, get in your best fighting stance and okay, be prepared. And I was like, okay, what's going on? And he set me up and started talking to me. He says, are you ready? And then he throws a little Metsa bush, a little finger, uh, flick into my face and it made me it startled me I reared back and all of a sudden before I knew it I was laying on my back on the ground and he had used Kota Gaesh, a wrist uh, pin to take me to the mat and I was like whoa what just happened um, and he was like a distraction can sometimes win the fight he says I know you've you know been taught a certain way, but it's time to open up your eyes and, and look at things from a different perspective. Don't, don't let go of everything you've been taught, but learn how to, you know, work that into what we're teaching here. Um, and that, that was a real eye opening moment for me. Um, because a simple little flick to the face of this guy's hand and he had me on my back 
in no time and could have at that point, you know, tied me up in the knots, had his way with me. Um, but he was just really good about understanding what each student needed for that class. And so he imparted, you know, that love of jujitsu and wanting to help each student through each class as much as I could. Um, and then finally I ran into, um, a personal trainer, um, named, named Jared here in Anchorage who has an extensive boxing background, uh, and used to be a Muay Thai fighter. And, uh, he taught me the ways of Muay Thai and American boxing and man is American boxing a lot more technical than I ever thought it would be. Um, and I struggle with that, um, that style. Um, I was thinking it would be a lot easier than it would be, but it has so many technical aspects um, to it that I have not been able to dedicate myself as much as I should. Um, but it's one of those things that when COVID is over, I'd, I'd like to dive deeper into the style of boxing. Um, I feel it could enhance my striking capabilities and self-defense techniques. Makes sense. You had mentioned something uh, in the midst of that conversation there regarding the somebody who makes third-degree black belts dangerous. It's so interesting to me, depending on which style it is, there's that marker point where it's like, okay, now he's here. Now you got to watch out for him. It's, it's like, you know, before then, you know, he's still learning. He's not really dangerous yet. After that, you've really got to respect him. But here's that one point. And it seems to be different across every style. It's hilarious to me. You know, the couple of taekwondo yeah, classes I... I've been around, it's like, when you make first degree black belt, now you really know how to apply stuff. You're, you're good to go. Uh, Kempo, it's like the most dangerous guy on the planet is a Kempo brown belt because you've got all of the techniques and not the experience and knowledge with which to use them effectively without hurting somebody. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, in some of the places like the Japanese lineages are more often around like third degree black belt. And, you know, I, my first instructor used to tell stories about when he'd go to camps in Hawaii and you'd have the third degree and fourth degree black belts there and people, you know, the newly minted Shodans and Nidons were strutting their stuff and whatnot and some of the you know senior people are sitting there going hey don't tease the lions you know them guys wearing three right. or four stripes them's the lions don't tease the lions and somebody get out of line in the right. middle and just get flattened <laughs> yeah yeah no don't don't tease the bark the, the chain dog you know you never know when that chain's gonna break um in brazilian jiu-jitsu the guys always say that the, the new white belts are the most dangerous people on the mat, but that's just because they just don't know what they're doing yet, you know? Um, and a lot of those guys get themselves and others hurt um, just because they're learning these awesome techniques that are effective and brutal and they don't have the control or the, the um, what's the right word, uh, sensitivity to their training partner's abilities to keep it safe for each of them. So, yeah, um, but I look at it more. I mean, I I do respect his his point of view. With the this guy is probably going to be more dangerous. I mean, I've seen I've seen teenage students that were in their sixteen to eighteen range, were in a black belt, but were the most phenomenal martial art martial artists and practitioners, and their physical capabilities were just surpassed everybody else. Um, I really think it's the student, you know, um, and the amount of effort they put into their training, I think is where it really all boils, boils down to. 
I got to bring in one other thing. You have a, a meme up on your Facebook page. It says, you're not the most important person in the gym. Your training partner is. They sacrifice their time, energy, and body in order to train your art. For without them, you cannot train. So respect your training partners. There you go, Mr. White Belts. Right? <laughs> and Ms. White Belts, I guess. Well, you know, it's it's 100% the truth. Um, you know, when we say, Domo arigato gozaimashita, thank you so much for the training. Um, we're letting that other person know, hey, without you here, I, I wouldn't have much to do. You know, I'd be practicing some weapons katas, but as martial artists, especially in a grappling style, uh, we sacrifice ourselves to each other every time we step on the mat. Uh, there's that level of trust and respect that we share between each other and understanding that, um, you know, we can only do so much on the mats and keep ourselves safe and healthy. Um, but through that rigorous training, inevitably, we hope that, you know, things become a react, a reactionary response and it's going to work when it's truly tested. Um, I mean, I'm 47 years old. I can't be getting uh, Nihonage or Niki Joe or Nidano Sai thrown on me every night 20 times by these young guys and have them lock it in tight. Uh, I wouldn't have any wrists or elbows um, to swing a hammer all day long and make a lot of money, you know? So um, we, <laughs> we have, we have to say real. thank you. To, well, you know, we, we have to say thank you and acknowledge that we're all sacrificing something to be on those mats and to help each other get better. And I think as long as we all have that mindset, then we're going to make each other better and we're going to push each other um, in a healthy and, you know, proactive way. Love it. Just speaking of that, so you've got multiple style experience. So how do you deal with it when you get somebody who's coming in from another, you know, they've had training in whatever style coming into your door and saying, hey, I want to check out what you guys are doing. Like, What does that conversation look like for you? Well, I've actually had that conversation a couple of times. Um, you know, I don't like the term, but I'm going to use it a lunk, right? I, somebody that comes walking through the door and just thinks they're, they're more there to like prove how much of a, uh, the badass they are. Um, and they're not really looking to come in and, and learn something. Um, or you got the guy that comes in and is truly interested in expanding their, you know, range of techniques and understanding. Um, I try to fill each person out, have a short conversation with them, ask them, you know, what their, their knowledge is, what their, how much time they've spent and ask them, why are they here? You know, are, are they here? Are they like me? Are they trying to figure out a system so they better understand it? Or are they from a, a hard style and want to learn a soft style? Or are they just there for the camaraderie of the dojo and they like having a group of people that they want to be a part of, a community that shares similar interests to them? Um, for example, um, Ross Stratton, one of my students, um, and I use that term lightly because I believe this gentleman knows way more about martial arts than me, but at the time I was the sensei because I'm the higher ranking member of the martial art Sabicon. Um, but he's a fourth uh, Don master level Waichiru instructor. And that's a real hard Okinawan style type of karate. And his level of body hardening and his mastery of the very small range of techniques that style has to offer 
was exemplary. But he came in and wanted to train because when he didn't want to have to break somebody in half, he wanted to know other techniques to, you know, subdue the opponent with as least force and damage to them as possible. You know, that's very much Aikido, but that is also right at the root and core of Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu. Um, safety at all times. Safety to ourselves, safety to those around us, and safety to the poor, dumb bastard that decided to try and assault us or take something from us. Um, so Ross came in, studied with us, and in Seibukan, if you have a a black belt from another martial art, you can be awarded your first level black belt in as uh, quickly as a year. Um, and I didn't quite agree with that coming from the Tung Sido lineage where it was, Hey, you can get it in two years, but it's probably going to take you four or five because we don't mess around here. Well, Ross obviously was just an amazing martial artist. His body control, his balance, his flexibility, his strength conditioning, just uh, on par with any other person I've trained with. And he took full advantage of us saying, look, use that martial art that you know and love and bring its concepts into this martial art. Just don't stray from the keyhole we're teaching that day. But if I'm teaching uh, step inside, block maneuver to take somebody down with Kodagaish and show a simple arm bar, he was able to throw in a couple extra temis using some of his stances specific to Weichi Ru and to try to put certain wrist blocks on this guy or to choke him out is nearly impossible, which came from his training. So I, his intentions, I believe were pure, you know, that he wanted to come in and just learn a new style. And then I found out from training with him that he also wanted that camaraderie. He had moved from the Eastern coast with his family and was looking for a, a new family of uh, martial artists to hang out with and train with. And it worked out on all of our behalf because he shared things with us that we didn't know. And we shared things with him and that's the best kind of, you know, student teacher relationship that you can have in my opinion. So I kind of fill him out a little bit. I trained with him for a while and it ended up being that I tell my classes, you know, it's like, look, be sensitive to each other's abilities. Don't, you don't want to go as hard with a, a, a younger student or a, a lower ranking student as you might go with a black belt. And then as you train with each other, get to an understanding with each other and, I always like to tell the students, start off slow, start, you know, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, you know, the old saying, and start off slow, use the technique, understand those points of control. And if you get comfortable with it, now try to speed it up a little bit. And if you and your partner are in agreement, maybe you go a little bit harder. Maybe you tweak on that elbow just a little bit more, get a little bit more of the realism feel for it, but make sure that your, your training partner is accepting of that and understanding of that. And uh, that can really help progress you through the information you need to learn. Well said. I think you also touched on another point there that's, you know, there it's not no longer the days of the late fifties and the sixties where the only people you found in a martial arts school were just there to, you know, get their fighting instincts out and, you know, beat the crap out of each other all day long. Um, there's, there's a whole lot of different motivations people are taking martial arts these days. And that's that's kind of the genesis of what started this podcast. You know, it's some people are there for the self-defense aspects. Some people are there for the camaraderie. 
some people are there because they really just like learning material. And for whatever reason, that particular school, you know, they walked in there and it felt like, hey, there's cool material that I can learn here. Yeah, and there's a blending in every school of some part of all of those. But there's absolutely some schools that focus much more, you know, on one side versus the other too. And it all goes back to you know, what oh, kind yeah. of environment is that teacher creating and what does that material lend itself to? Right. And that's one of the things I just, I feel that people are drawn to Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu. You know, we come in, I'm at the local YMCA, which is great because I don't have to worry about um, running the business side of a dojo so much. The space is there. I do have to supply materials and gear for it and keep up on some of the maintenance, but I don't have to pay rent every month. Um, my students, we offer mar the martial art, uh, Sabukan for a really reduced price, comparatively speaking, to what a lot of other um, full-time clubs would be offering. And when somebody comes in off the street and they're at the YMCA for maybe for working out, getting going, using the pool, uh, they were doing some yoga classes. Maybe they brought their kids in for daycare or to do some basketball with the Y. And then they see the flyer out there. Then they hear people key-eyeing and grunting and moaning and cheering and clapping for one another. They come check us out. And as soon as they walk through the door, they see what I would assume looks like this unassuming five foot nine skinny guy in over there teaching along with a plethora of just about every body type and size and shape you can imagine out there on the mats training and having fun. And in our system, we have, we ask you to come and watch a class first so that you can see what the style is all about. And obviously one class isn't going to give you the whole spectrum of what we have. But they can get a feel for how I teach and how the students are responding. And then if they think it's something they want to do, then we say, hey, come out and get on the mats with us for free one night. You know, put hands on, see if, see if this is something you really want to do. And I have only had a handful of people in the past three years ever say, no, this is cool. Thanks for your time, but I don't think this is for me. Almost every single person that's walked through that door for some reason or another has decided, Hey, yeah, this is something that I want to try. Um, and I think Julio Taribo Concho, the creator of Seibu Kanji Jitsu, um, you know, he teaches each one of his instructors personally. And, um, that's not something a lot of other martial artists can say, you know, one that they've trained with the creator of their art. Number two, that he personally taught them and instructed them on how to become a sensei. Um, and then, you know, Concho goes around and visits all the schools and he imparts his knowledge and his love of the martial arts. And I think we all try to take a piece of that and share it with all of our students each time we teach. It's just a wonderful community of people that just want to make each other better martial artists. And to your earlier point, you know, what is a martial artist? Is it the guy that's just coming in to train and be stay in shape? Is it the person that loves the camaraderie aspect of it? I think every part of that is a part of being a martial artist. So you could have a 65 year old little old grandma that says, Hey, I'm a martial artist. And she might go do, um, what's the style of Kung Fu, uh, Tai Chi, excuse me. <laughs> she might go out and train Tai Chi. Well, she's a martial artist in my book because she dedicates 
part of her time and works on those, that skill set, that's part of being a martial artist, not just being some young buck that can do a jump spinning back kick and break boards and run around knowing that if two dudes his size, you know, jumped him, that he'd probably be able to break him in pieces. I mean, each facet of that is being a martial artist to me. And I think Sabukan really offers something to each person, each individual looking for something when they walk through those doors. That was an awesome synopsis. I hope I'm not, you know, rambling on too much. <laughs> I had to sit there and, and think through that through there, and that was, you know, wow, that was. If you could write the ad copy for it, that'd be, yeah, that would be it right there. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. We're gonna have to put together an advertisement for your school for you. Well, you know, um, I just do Facebook posts, and um, the YMCA takes care of the rest. Like I said, I. Um, if I was going to open up a full-time school at a private, you know, location, I've looked into everything a person really has to do to keep that business running. And, um, I think one of the reasons I, I love martial arts so much, and I honestly get dressed and go down to the YMCA, I look forward to every night. It's never been... I've never once been like, oh, I gotta go into class tonight and teach again. I'm always looking forward to going and teach. Um, and part of that, I think, is because, you know, I already run a, a construction company here in Anchorage and I'm the owner operator of that. And I deal with every facet of that business. And many of those facets, while I know how to do it, I don't have to worry about it for Sebukan Jiu Jitsu because the YMCA does take care of a lot of that for us. Um, so I'm, I, I enjoy that, and I'm happy that that's the situation right now. Yeah, that's a big load off your mind for sure. It is. It allows you to really keep your focus on teaching, too. It does. It does. So I really like the approach that you took bringing in some of the people that came in from other styles. Now, with regard to your personal training, how much do you find yourself mixing your experiences together you know, whether it be you're doing a takedown and you go to the ground with something or you're doing, you know, striking movements to set up something else. How much of your own personal style has evolved from, you know, what you've drawn from each of your three main ones? Oh, every everything is, what's the right way to put this? Um, starting in Kung Sudo, I was taught a certain way to do everything. And then going into Sebukan and them having a little bit different take, but also having uh, a fellow practitioner that's a um, Shotokan karate guy, um, somebody else that knew more boxing. Um, we all have our own take on these specific techniques. And my style, I would have to say, has changed every step of the way. I, I used to be more in that rigid mindset that I'm going to do it this way. Uh, but when it was tested, um, by some people more knowledgeable than me, who I really respect, there, it was never like, oh, look, your technique didn't work. They were like, okay, your technique didn't work this time, and, and this may be why. And I've been fortunate enough to, to train and study under people that really have a, a good understanding of that. Um, I've never had an instructor like, criticize me for my effort or a technique 
they've always been able to help me understand if I was doing something wrong, what was wrong about it for that situation. Um, but I would say that, you know, if I went back with my knowledge today and went to some of the sparring competitions I went to, I would probably obliterate some of that competition. Um, just because, you know, more, more skills, more understanding. Um, I have certain go-to techniques that I'm going to use in just about any situation that comes up. You know, when it comes to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I have three go-to techniques that I feel comfortable with. Um, and that comes really, I think, from one of my training partners back in high school. I did wrestling more for keeping in shape for long-distance running because it was during the off-season. Um, but one of my good friends and training partners, Ben, he was like, look, Jim, if you want to get that number one spot, you really have to master a couple techniques. And so he taught me how to do a single leg takedown and the defense for it, and then throw a half Nelson for a pin. And he was like, we just need to drill this and drill this and drill this. And then you need a, a backup technique, but these should be your go-tos that you can count on like a cuddly warm blanket on a cold winter night. You know, you just, you got to know that it's always there for you and feel comfortable with it. So I have, techniques like that from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, from Tung Sudo, and from Sebukan Jiu-Jitsu that I just try to hone and maintain and make better if possible. And it's just, I feel it through repetition, you know, just constant training and repetition, breaking it down, and then testing it against, you know, when we do Henka, um, it's just random techniques coming out at you. And I always try to clear my mind at that point. It used to be that I would say, okay, we're doing Henka. Somebody's going to throw random attacks at me. And okay, I'm, I used to tell myself going into each one of those techniques. Okay, do this. Okay, do this. And then through training through the Godon level in Sebukan, it was about entering the void and knowing all of this information, but letting it go, forgetting it and just trusting what you know and allowing yourself to just react to a situation. And that was hard for me because letting go and not being in control, you wouldn't say that's my forte. Um, so it was a very difficult level for me to, to understand. Um, and there's something that a lot of the Sabucon practitioners have told me over the years is like, look, you know, you've got your Shodan, your first degree black belt. You're really going to start understanding that about Sondan, about your third degree black belt. Um, and whether it's because they said it and it's partly making it come to fruition, but it really is. It's like, or maybe it's because I've now, you know, it, it uh, promoted three people to black belt and two people to uh, second degree black belt. I'm getting ready to promote my first Sondan. Um, maybe it's, teaching the techniques, not being taught the techniques. Maybe that helps me learn them better, understand them in a, in a different way. Um, but all parts of, I think all, all of those are facets to the way my style, my own personal style has changed over the years. I think you really hit the nail on the head too, because you're, you're going to go quite a long ways by just studying yourself. When you have to teach somebody else, that expands your knowledge base so ridiculously. Uh, for those of listeners out there that have never actually taught somebody else, uh, or let me put that in better perspective, 
there's a whole lot of things that you can teach people in life. Martial arts is unique other than the military. It's the only place on earth that you're teaching people methods and manners to really hurt another human being. And right. having the maturity and knowledge base to be able to teach that kind of material effectively as well as put it in context requires so much more knowledge than just being able to learn it yourself does. There, I don't think there's any way to put it into words short of you having to, have to do it yourself. Yeah, I agree. I'm not an eloquent enough speaker to, to really make someone understand it. I think you said it very well. It's just, I mean, I actually wrote my master's thesis on that subject and what it takes to be an instructor and universal instructor criteria, et cetera, and so forth. Cause it's, you know, there's, there's a massive disparity across the entire industry in what does it take to be an instructor? And there are some places where you go walk in the door and the guy has, you know, 50 trophies across there. And he'd say, hi, I'm head instructor. I'm Joe. Oh, hi, Joe. Cool. Head instructor. What'd you do to get that? And we see all these trophies. I won those. And my mind, I mean, even as a neophyte in martial arts, you know, my mind was like, okay, great. So that tells me that you can move. How does that tell me you can teach? Right. Those are two completely different skill sets. Yeah, being a teacher um, started off, you know, taking over um, classes. Master Tomei would, she was wanting to um, further her collegiate studies and get a degree. Um, and so she started asking if I could take over the last half of some classes. And then that turned into me teaching on a certain night. And um, I was scared. I was concerned. I was like, are people going to follow me? Am, am I communicating this information? Um, in Tung Sudo, I found later on looking back that it being a military martial art, I'm basically like that drill instructor wearing that Smokey the Bear hat. And those people that, are, that choose to be in that class know that it's military. You say, yes, sir. You say, no, sir. There's no other answer or I don't know, sir, which is totally acceptable. Um, but there's no shrugging the shoulders. We don't speak in sign language. There's no attitudes. It's just, I say you do. And so the teaching style is differently there. Um, but then I don't always have to be browbeating. I don't always have to be up in the person's face. We then, you know, talk about things. I explain something, <clears throat> but then there's that modality where it's, drive it in, do it under pressure. There's a certain um, benefit, I think, to you've got to get this done or there's going to be a repercussion, you know. Uh, do this technique proficiently or give me 50 push-ups, you know, risk versus reward type stuff. Um, and so I thought I had a, a pretty strong set of teaching uh, skills because students were listening to me. I was barking out orders. My students were progressing through their skill sets really well. We were going to competitions and my students were getting trophies. Um, and then I went into SaberCon, totally different mindset. Once again, more laid back, um, no yelling and screaming at each other. Um, there is, you know, key eyeing and there is, uh, ways of being aggressive, but not so much as the Tung Sudo style. Um, but then I, I got my first degree black belt and I was offered the chance to go to Monterey, California and take the instructor's course with Concho. And I jumped at it and he had us sit down for two days, uh, for eight hours a day and go over what he expected of the students, how we should teach, why we should teach, 
Um, we went over some basic, you know, general knowledge coverage, but by then, you know, it used to be, you had to be a second degree black belt to get the teacher certification. Um, I came in shortly after he changed it to first degree black belt. Um, and, you know, I, I can't speak 100% for Concho, but I, I think he takes each person case by case um, and knows what their strengths and weaknesses are. But the system is laid out in front of you, and you have to teach a certain amount of classes, and you have a set of classes, you teach certain things, another set, and as you get more teaching experience while you're in your training portion of the Sensei program, then it starts opening up the more you go and you get to start teaching more. And um, it was an interesting process to go through. And then to you have to come back and teach those classes. And it's really, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty simplistic at first. And then, but you're, you've planned everything out, you know, and it really showed me the benefit of taking out extra time to really figure out what principles, what gensoku I wanted to throw into a class with one intent was, you know, throw this in at the beginning, add this in the middle to a final conclusion of this. And what was really amazing and interesting was you'd take all this time to plan a class and then the class that shows up was not the class you had planned it for, um, if that makes any sense, you know? You think that certain martial artists are going to be and you're going to have certain body types and a certain number of people and some people don't show up and it's fewer numbers or not exactly the way you thought it was going to go. That teaches me that, that taught me, excuse me, the flexibility of being an instructor and really having sensitivity and understanding who's in the classroom right now. Yes, this is what I thought I was going to teach, but that's not exactly what this group of individuals needs at the moment, you know, and if all else fails, go back to the basics, you know, go back to the basics and teach a beginner's class because even sitting with a Shihan level black belt around my waist, I will never stop training the basics and understanding the basics and going back and looking at some basic techniques from three or four years ago from a level that I haven't really played around with it, it relights a fire inside you to understand it. And you look at it from a different perspective and you see things you didn't see before. And now the technique gets even stronger. And now it's, Oh, that's something I can teach the class next week. That's something I can share with all these other people. And it's always amazing. My students love it when I go to Monterey because I get to connect with, you know, 50 to a hundred, just tremendous martial artists of, all size and shape and every rank and knowledge level. And I go there and I just, it fills up my gas tanks and I come back to Anchorage and for the next two weeks, they're like, man, can you go to, can you go to Monterey more often? Because <laughs> something about that place, maybe it's Concho, maybe it's all the other black belts. Maybe it's guys like you, you know, we, we connect, we, we we have fun and we share stuff with each other and then I get to take all that cool information and share it with my students. Yeah, we hit it off pretty quick. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's always fun down there. Um, I always look forward to it and it's been a real bummer that we haven't been able to go back for over a year now. Yeah, almost Dude, two years. Gosh, because it was last January, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, next. Yeah, so. we had uh, Gaskew and 
uh, January of 2020, and COVID shut us down after that. So, I know I watched the video, and I wanted to. I, I'm totally bummed I didn't get to be a part of that. So I'm looking forward to the next time we can all be together down there. Sounds like I'll be doing a little more video stuff. So uh, I, I don't think it'll be a problem going forward. <laughs> awesome. uh, you touched on something really cool that uh, mirrored. Uh, there's a gentleman named uh, Master Bob White out of Southern California, uh, USA, and he's been in the same location for almost 50 years now, which in Contra Costa, which is just mind blowing to me. But oh yeah, you know, his his tournament fighters have taken home gold in every tournament they've got, you know ever fought in. It's just ridiculous how successful they are. But he put out a DVD which is required viewing for everybody at my school uh, who wants to teach, and it's the elements of effective coaching. And one of the pieces in there is he really highlights to that same point you made earlier is the value of planning out what you want to teach, but also understanding that may not always work out, but there's still something in that plan that's going to help you maintain the structure of your class and get something done productively. I thought that was brilliant. Right. You know, the way you phrased that thing, it just it reminded me so much of that DVD. And it seems like all the, the good people who really understand how to coach others to be good coaches or instructors themselves, they all pretty much understand that same concept. That's really cool to hear. Well, there's, there's truth and truth, man. I mean, that, and that was taught to me and I'm just going to pay it forward. That's the way I look at it. I firmly believe that knowledge has no value unless we share it. And that's, that's really the whole goal of this podcast. It's, you know, everybody's got a story. Everybody's got some experiences that they can share. And you wouldn't believe the feedback that we come back in here on the way back, which is, Hey, I watched this guy's episode or excuse me, I listened to this guy's episode and he said this one thing, and it just totally opened up my mind to thinking about things differently. And it's something about the audio-only format. It just really seems to connect with people. So um, I'm, I'm really stoked I got you to come on this episode. You have no idea. No, thanks. I, I really appreciate it. Great opportunity. But here in Anchorage, you know, we, there's four or five martial arts schools. Um, I really miss the lower 48. I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest. And um, just the the closeness you know you can be in oregon and drive to washington or california you know in a day whereas alaska um 72 hours of straight non-stop driving um with tankards of coffee if you know i, I want to go anywhere or it's a plane ride uh i wish You're i was a 13 hour plane ride yeah yeah well that's no, not that bad but um it, it's just you know having there's a lot more in the lower 48 when it comes to opportunities um for martial artists, I believe, than up here. Um, but once again, there's some amazing schools up here, um, some great teachers, some traditional schools, some Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools, just all kinds of stuff. Um, but I do wish there was more of it up here. I've, I've been fortunate to, I believe, choose the right people to train under along the way, whether I knew I was doing it or not. Um, so I think I'm lucky there. I can completely agree. There's no way I'm where I'm at. There's no way this podcast is, is happening had I not been so blessed to be under the right people at the right time. It, it really is half of you know what effort you put in and half of just being dumb luck to be in the right place at the right time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget that day walking across the, you know, the foyer at the YMCA thinking I was about to talk to a total. 13 year old boy with a short military haircut and a tung sudo uniform <laughs> turning around and being my uh, master level tung sudo instructor for you know even though i still don't actively train with her she's still my my sob on them and she always will be you know and that's 13 years later 
I love it. What do you think the most important thing that you have taken out of teaching has been? Important thing of teaching. Wow. Yeah, nothing like a softball question, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, that thing I touched on earlier, uh, sensitivity, understanding who's in my classroom and what what's going to benefit them that night, you know, um, and and especially in Sebukan, you know, I, I've toyed around every now and again. I'll think, man, I really miss uh, Tung Sudo and teaching Tung Sudo. Uh, I should start classes up again. Um, and the last couple times I've toyed around with it, life has gotten in the way, COVID being one of them. Um, and then I still get the opportunity to go in and teach Sebukan. And I'll question myself sometimes whether I felt I got my, my point across or that the people really took in uh, the information I had to share with them that night. But I think as long as I put the needs of my students first and understand what it is they're needing without that being like directly communicated to me, I think I still have a chance of being a, a good instructor um, as long as I keep that at the forefront. Love it. All right, another softball question for you. Oh, yeah, no problem. So you obviously, like any good martial artist, and, and based on your feedback so far, you've spent a significant time looking back to compare for where you started or where you were at this point in your journey to where you are in present day, right? Right. So where do you think that you're going to be if we do that in the opposite direction and look towards the future? So where do you see yourself looking out three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years? Well, um, I'm glad you asked me that question, Steve, because, um, this is something I touch with my students all the time and I can't remember who said it. Um, it might even be a meme, but I'm pretty sure it, it's from a movie quote. Um, <laughs> so I apologize, but it is successful people set achievable goals and, you know, I see myself, I set goals for myself based on taking small steps towards achieving the greater ones I want to take. And so the first goal I see for myself is completing the Sebukan curriculum in the next two years. I thought it would have been um, in June of 2021. Um, if everything had gone the way it was supposed to without COVID, I'd be testing for my Nanadon in Japan at the International Taikai um, with Concho overseeing it, but COVID got in the way, so I had to reset my priorities. Um, I still see myself completing as soon as I can get to Monterey again to test for my Rokudon. I've been training diligently with that, so that's my small-term goal is getting my Rokudon and my Nanadon. Uh, a larger goal maybe five years down the road would be having trained two or three more individuals that I can use as a support network, fellow martial artists, martial art practitioners that have trained with me and that can hold me up as I hold them up. You know, it, it, it takes a village they say. Um, and I believe that's the same, 
I need a strong support structure in case things get in the way. I can't make a class. I need to know I have another sensei that I can hold on to. So I have one individual. He's a great martial artist named Dom, and he's gone through this uh, sensei program in Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu, and he's my assistant instructor. I'd like to have a couple more. Um, for my super long-term goal, I want to get Renshi, Hanshi, and Kiyoshi in Seibukan, which um, are titles beyond Minkyo Kaiden and Nanadon. Um, they're about how many people you've promoted and a, a greater understanding of the knowledge. So I, I hope to achieve that. And I would hope to stop swinging a hammer one day and running my construction business, shutting that down or turning it over to somebody I trust and actually teaching martial arts full-time and opening up a full-time school when I can really devote myself 100% into that um, aspect of running the business. So that's where I see myself. Those are some fantastic goals. Well, you know, uh, aim big, shoot for the stars. Um, things are going to get in the way. But I think, you know, if I set up small goals along the way to help me achieve those bigger goals, there isn't any reason I can't achieve them. Yeah, I totally am ripping this off of my buddy Bill Parsons. Uh, I just listened to his episode. He was on season one uh, a couple of years back. And... He said uh, one of the questions I asked him was about what do you how do you help a student who's having difficulty learning and for whatever reason they're just running into a wall and his feedback on that was he has them help them compare themselves to their small goals and to look back and see how much they how far they've already come and they've had similar struggles in the past you know we got through that one why can't we get through this one you know oh yeah it's a combination yeah. of the perseverance and recognition of what you've already accomplished. And how much have you already done along the way? It seems like it's really impactful to helping other people. Sometimes turning that same lens inward is a pain in the butt. <laughs> I've been at it for, you know, shoot, uh, I'm counting December 15th, 1998 as the official first day I trained. It's close enough. Um, I don't remember when the exact date was, but it was close enough. It was the middle of December of 98. So I'm counting that date. Anyway, there's been, I don't know, countless moments in training where Things just didn't go right, and I just was struggling so hard to get past this certain level. And you know, now I'm at the point where I've been at it for so long, I can look back and go, "This is no different than it was anywhere else." It's just a matter of, you know, putting the time, putting the energy into it, and you know, it's going to work out sooner or later. You just keep asking questions and whatnot. But sometimes you know, it, it's really hard to help people get motivated that way. What tips and tricks do you yeah. have along those same ballpark? Like, how do you help those students that just can't seem to find ways to set their own achievable goals? Well, I take I use like people in the dojo, uh, different members. Um, everybody, a lot of people. I'm not gonna say everybody. A lot of people have shortcomings. They, they. There's a, a physical side to their stature or their capabilities that might hinder them in a technique. And I will try to find someone similar that had a similar problem or an issue or a problem understanding and go, okay, you're, you're having a hard time with this. And this doesn't seem to be connecting with you. And I'll say, you know, and I never do it in a derogatory way, but I'm like, look at this individual over here. I said, this person was having the same exact troubles you're having. Now I want you to 
take a look at them doing the technique that you're having an issue with. And, and I ask them to do that. So number one, that, you know, just shows them that, yeah, um, this person looks similar to me, is similar to me in capabilities. And by golly, look at them doing that high fall, that beautiful STEMI high fall and protecting themselves. And this person thinks, man, I'm never going to get this. Or they have a block in their head that says, I'm too afraid to try this or just let go and trust myself. Um, and for almost every technique that we do in Sebukan, there's a, a very basic style of that technique. And then it becomes more you know, advanced as you get more proficient at it. Um, like a, a, a basic forward roll, you know, it looks like a somersault, but it really isn't. Um, and a lot of students struggle with that very first ukemi technique that they try to learn, just a, a simple forward roll, not allowing, you know, their head to touch the ground and rolling across the ground softly, but then coming up with good kamai and, and understanding their balance, their posture and their place where they're at. Um, so that's one, I try to show them, look, this is, this is someone who has done it and that, that doesn't always work for everybody. And then I'll try to find a way for them to make it their own technique. And when it comes down to it, sometimes you just have to find the right way to push a person beyond their comfort level. And in some instances, it's been a painful process and sometimes, you know, they, they figure out a way to work it, work it out. Um, I've only ever had one student um, not be able to complete our white belt curriculum for Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu. And unfortunately for this student, she just um, didn't trust herself enough. And although I would make special um, arrangements to come in and teach her and do private instruction uh, with this person, I just don't, I didn't know how to get beyond those barricades they had put up for themselves. Even though I feel honestly that I did everything I could taking out extra time, trying to effectively communicate what I was trying to say. I would even step myself out of the equation and bring in students thinking that um, maybe a beginner's mind would be better suited to connect with that individual at that point. Um, I challenged the person to, you know, do other things that were scary to them and see if they could push past some boundaries. Um, and only ever once has that not worked out for me. And while I consider it a failure, I also know that I'm not always going to be able to teach everyone. Um, sometimes, a certain individual is not going to like my style um, that I might come off. I might come off in a way that just doesn't jive with their personality. And I have to accept that though, that it, what I'm teaching isn't for everyone. Um, it, it is for everyone that wants to submit themselves to what we have to teach and make a way of making it their own. And if they truly do that, then it should work out for them. But um, as long as I'm trying my best, and, and I, you know, the word try, as long as I'm doing my best, okay, do or do not, there is no try, right? Um, nice. <laughs> I am a Star Wars geek. But um, 
as long as I'm doing my best and I feel I put 110% into it, if there's ever a moment that comes up that I failed a student, um, I don't really consider it a failure. I just think that sometimes there are situations that we're not going to be, be able to get past certain roadblocks. And so I might say, you know, look, maybe this isn't this particular style is for you. Um, but honestly, it, it, we've broken down almost all those barriers every time they've, they've arisen. Um, and so beyond that one student who ended up saying, yeah, I, I think I'm just going to go in a different direction. I don't think this is for me. Um, I suggested some other schools with some other people I trusted and, um, I hope she went and found, a. Uh, a better place for her to be with a, a instructor who knew some tricks that I didn't know or had some skills that I didn't have. Um, but there's never any, you know, ill feelings between the person. Um, you just have to accept sometimes that you're going to do your utmost and sometimes you're going to come up short every once in a while. Uh, and if you can accept that and try to learn from that as well, that maybe the next time along that won't be the outcome and you'll have the answers for that next student. You gave me another train of thought off of that. Looking backwards this time, instead of looking forwards or looking at present, looking backwards, what do you think the biggest roadblocks in your own training that you overcame were? Oh, wow. We can't um, count COVID in that because that train wrecked everybody. So other than COVID. No, other than COVID. Okay. So, um, I've worked construction my whole life. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to run and own my, you know, my own construction company, but, um, my hands are intricate tools, not only for martial arts, but for doing construction. Um, and I've broken just about every one of my fingers uh, on the mats at one point or another, whether it was my silliness and trying to do a, a knife hand uh, board break or um, striking somebody's knee with my fist or elbow and breaking something along the way. I have broken a lot of the digits on my hands and some of my toes. Um, so knowing that work had to come first because you have to pay the bills as a student, um, sometimes that did hinder me in ways going, do I really want to practice this technique? Um, is it worth what might happen to my productivity and ability to, you know, produce an income. Um, and the same thing, I have had some serious back injuries and along the way through my earlier years, um, I didn't understand that some of those injuries had never fully hear, healed. Um, I messed up a rotator cuff a long time ago in a pretty bad fall off of a mountain bike where I separated my shoulder, but I never had any surgery done. And my lower back has been completely blown out a couple times um, to where I, you know, couldn't crawl out of bed for a week. And I nursed those injuries, um, never having had a surgery to correct correct any kind of problems I've ever had. So those reared their ugly little heads along the way, you know? Um, and I remember wanting to train so bad and I'd thrown out my back at work and I, I had to take two days off. Luckily it were two days with no classes. And then I, I texted Sabam Nimtomi and said, ma'am, 
I, I, I can't come in to train tonight. I have an injury, but I, I want to still be allowed to come in and watch class if I can. And she was totally accepting to that. And then she saw me walking in <laughs> with a cane and I could barely stand up straight. And she's like, Mr. Knudsen, what are you doing here? Get and I'm like, ma'am, I, I do not want to miss a minute of instruction. I'm going to fall behind. I'm not going to, you know, get what you were going to teach today. She's like, Go home and take care of your body. Love it. <laughs> There's no place for you here right now. Um, we'll be here waiting for you when you're healed. Um, so, you know, physical limitations have gotten in the way a few times. Um, but other than that, that, I think that's pretty much it. So effectively, your own injuries are the biggest roadblocks you'd had to deal with. Yeah. I mean, other than balancing... Um, work, family, and dojo. Um, that's probably the other hardest thing to do. And um, I'm sure every martial artist out there can, you know, sympathize with me on this. I have the most understanding, loving life partner I could ever want. She's amazing. Uh, maybe she just doesn't want to hang out with me that much, but maybe she really understands my passions for the martial arts. <laughs> and, you know, uh, running a business, a construction company in Alaska, when a guy can work 12 to 16 hour days, six days a week, uh, because we have 24 hours of sunlight and that's just the way it works up here. Um, and then still making time for the dojo and then knowing that there are Sundays I don't train and Sundays I don't teach. Um, and lately I've had a lot more time because of COVID, but without having a very understanding partner in all of it, um, I think it would have been a lot more difficult or I think I would have never been able to achieve um, my goals and the success I have achieved in martial arts without having her support. So I could see how that could be very difficult for other people. And there were times of contention along the way um, when it was made known to me that I could probably stay home one more night this week than go in and train, you know, for the third time um that day <laughs> on a certain class or something um but you know um you have to balance it all out and i tell every single one of my students and i mean it and i believe it a hundred percent work family dojo work comes first your family you know you got to provide for your family you got to be there for your family and if you've got time come in here and get on the mats because um, we're your second family and we're always going to be here for you. And we understand. Um, so that's what I ask all my students. That's how I ask them to prioritize things. And that's the way I look at it. And I always try to, you know, pass on things the way I understand it and the way I appreciate things and hope other people understand it and appreciate it as well. That way that came across to me is you're, you're really putting family first regardless because the work is just simply to pay for the things that your family needs. Basically, yeah. So it's really family first. It just work has to take care of making sure we pay the bills so the family's taken care of. Right. In the same way that, you know, I'm going to protect my family in any kind of crisis situation, but honestly, I have to protect myself first. If I don't protect myself first, I can't protect my family and I look at it the same way as I've got to work to support my family, to provide for them, but it's, it's for them. So they really kind of go hand in hand. 
Um, I just think, you know, uh, it, it breaks it down a little bit more regimentally. And, you know, if I say the same thing over and over again, much like if I teach my students to punch at the same location over and over again, uh, it'll stick. And there's uh, an annoyance, but also a comfort uh, when you hear the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and you can make it a mantra. And Consistency. You know, I can look and... Yeah, consistency. And I can look into my students' eyes and I can start saying something and I can see that look in their eye like, okay, we got it, Sensei. We, we understand. Um, but then there's always, you know, the right, the right thing said can spark, you know, the right little fire inside of someone and get them going again. So work family dojo. Awesome. All right. Jim, I want to thank you so much for being on this show. I mean, when we met, it was really just cool how fast we clicked and you were so helpful, you know, just those first couple of days we met learning new material and stuff like that. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk on this thing here. And we're moving now into our final segment. So I want to give you the moment here to kind of plug your stuff. You know, what do you got going on if people, you know, they're looking for any kind of construction services in Anchorage, Alaska. Where do they find Jim Knudsen? You know, all that good stuff. Of course, where's your okay. school and stuff like that? All right. Well, Steve, thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, uh, martial art-wise, um, Sabukan Jiu-Jitsu of Anchorage is located at the YMCA on 5353 Lake Otis Parkway in Anchorage, Alaska. Um, you can find us through the YMCA website, and you can find us on Sabukan Jiu-Jitsu of Anchorage on Facebook as well. Um, I like to post a lot of what's going on with our classes and unfortunately right now we're closed because of covid except for my black belt class um, due to class size restrictions but anchorage is looking at opening up very soon so i hope to get things going very quickly once we're allowed to um, if you are looking for any construction needs in alaska anchorage or the valley uh, you can look me up at knudsen enterprise um, my Email is knudsen73 at gmail.com, and our business number is 351-8367, area code 907. Awesome. I'll make sure we get any web links that are necessary and put those in your blurb for the uh, episode here, too. All right. So my last question for you, and this is the doozy. This podcast has currently been heard in 37 countries. I would imagine down the road, you know, it's going to be in 137 countries. Might go on for years and years and years, because once it comes on the internet, it's just going to be there until the internet dies, right? What mm -hmm. message would you like to send out to our entire listening body and anybody who might listen to this in the future? Okay. Um, put a guy in the spotlight, don't you? Right. Um, first and foremost, I think, is the just the moral code I live my life by and you can extrapolate from it what you want, but that's do good unto others. Do good works. Be a kind person. Um, look out for the little guy. Try to help out others in need. You know, um, I'm not a very religious person, but I'm a very spiritual person, and so I have to believe that if there's a greater power or force out there um, that dictates the direction I'm going in or will look upon me one day and judge me in one aspect or another that if I've paid it forward and I've 
done my best just to be a good person to others and I've done good works that the universe is going to take care of me. Um, so that would be my main message to everyone out there. Uh, we live in a crazy world and life can be hard. It can throw you challenges. And I truly believe I've seen it personally that when you feel you're at your weakest, when you're at your lowest, that if you don't give in and you, you just have to know that somebody out there cares about you and that things are going to get better. Sometimes it takes a lot of hard work and dedication as any martial artist will know. Um, and I would implore to everybody that can, whether you are have the title of sensei or whether you just have an older sibling or younger sibling, or you want to make a profession, pass on your knowledge to others. And, um, you can leave a little piece of yourself with every person that you touch in that way. And uh, it's, a, it's kind of a way of staying immortal in ways. Um, maybe your name won't be exactly remembered, but what you taught somebody, how you help somebody get better might change them in one way or another for the better. And if we could all do that, I think this world would be a lot greater place to live in. We might one day not even need martial arts for self-defense, but that's just my take on things. Gave me goosebumps, man. That was awesome. Truth is the truth. Share it with everybody you can, right? Beautiful. Jim, again, I thank you so much for being, agreeing to be appearing on the show here. I had so much fun talking with you, and I can't wait to get this episode up and running. Hey, thanks again for having me. Take care. Fantastic chat with Jim Sheehan. Jim is one of the first people I got to interact with when I started trading in Sabaton Jiu-Jitsu in January of 2019, and he continues to be a great friend, and I'm stoked to have him as our first guest from the great state of Alaska as well. If you're local in Anchorage, hit him up for construction or for martial arts. You'll be thankful in either case you did. That's a wrap on Episode 3 of Season 2. Season 1 is still available at all major podcast platforms, with new platforms added this year. If you like what you're hearing, give us a rating on whichever platform of choice you're listening on. We greatly appreciate the feedback. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon slash Audible, Pandora, and just in now on iHeartRadio as well. Find us at ArtistsOfMotion.com on our Facebook page, Artists of Motion. Twitter and Facebook at AOM Podcast. Email pod at ArtistsOfMotion.com. That's all for this week. I'm Steve Zalazowski. Catch you next time on the Artist of Motion podcast.